Well, for those of you don't, who don't know, uh, my name is Lance Hancock. Uh, Tony and his family are returning from vacation uh, as we speak. So keep them in your prayers as they are trying to make the, uh, the drive from uh, the Florida Peninsula all the way to Ohio today. Um, yeah, so they'll be back uh, for next Sunday. Anyway, um, I have to say that I am so thankful for the opportunity to uh, preach uh, to you, uh, my friends and family that I've grown to love uh, over the last three years that I've been here. Uh, I'm so thankful for this opportunity um, because of what's happening in the not-too-distant future for me. Uh, this next Sunday, the 20th, I will be out of commission as I'll be recovering from a wisdom tooth removal that happens this Thursday. You can pray for that. Um, Pray that nothing goes wrong, because the next Sunday, the 27th, I'm getting married. Uh, um, so would rather be somewhat normal for that day, so it's not recorded forever in the pictures. Um, and then the following Sunday, August 3rd, uh, Teresa and I will be coming back from Sedona, Arizona. So we will be uh, gone. And then the following Sunday after that will actually be our last day in Ohio. Um, before we move out west, um, as I have a job in Boise. Um, so this is probably my second to last time being able to serve you from this platform, um, as I hope to be able to lead uh, on, the, on the 10th of August, uh, the day before we leave. So I'm so thankful for this opportunity. And, and I want um, to share with you something that the Lord has been renewing my mind in has been transforming my understanding of who I am, who we are um, as disciples of Jesus. He's been helping me to locate myself and locate the church um, in his story, in the story that he is writing all across history, in his story that he communicates and reveals to us through scripture and especially in Jesus Christ. Um, so that's my hope this morning. Before we get started, though, I wanted to ask you to pray um, for this time. I wanted you to pray for me that the words that come out of my mouth would be um, the words that God wants you to hear, that I would be influenced and submitted to the Holy Spirit, and pray for those around you. Pray that those around you would have ears to hear, hearts to receive, whatever it is that the Lord desires to speak to you this morning. So would you go ahead and do that? Let's just spend a moment, each of us, praying for these things. God, the desire of my heart and the desire of many of those here today would be that you would be glorified through the exaltation of your Son, Jesus Christ. In order for that to happen, we need your Spirit. We need your Spirit to minister to each one of us, to all of us. So we pray for your blessing. And we, we ask that as a result of our time here this morning, spent together contemplating your word. We pray that our love would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that we may be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless when Christ returns so that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory, O God, and to your praise. Amen. That's my nephew. <laughs> um, so I said that I wanted to share something that God has been teaching me, um, renewing my mind about over the last few months. And um, he's been teaching me about discipleship. And really, he's been teaching me about what it means to be a disciple, which is really what it means to be a human being. 
uh, human being. Um, so think for a second with me. What does it even mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be human? Um, what is the essence of humanity? Why did God create us? Uh, I think it's easy for us, especially who are growing up in the church, familiar with the church, to say, well, you know, our purpose is to glorify God. Okay, great. But well, how do we do that? And what does that look like? Put some flesh on that for me. What does it mean to be human? In, in order to know um, the purpose of something, it's good to, to consult with uh, the maker. Why did you make this? Uh, if I saw a particular object that I didn't recognize um, lying on the counter, then I would want to know, hey, what is this for? What's its use? What's its function? And this actually happened the other night. Uh, Pete and Karen Hewling, who are here first service, they've graciously opened their home to me uh, this summer so that I didn't have to sign a new lease so I can get married and, and, and go. Um, and so I was at the house the other night, and I saw this object lying on the counter. And um, I had never seen anything like it before. And so my first instinct is that it was some sort of weapon for self-defense. Um, some girls carry mace and others carry portable nightsticks. And, um, and I wasn't um, intuitive enough to look at the tag, which actually tells me what it is. Um, so I was talking about it and kind of making fun of it because it's very flimsy and you really couldn't hurt anybody unless they were magnetic. Um, but Pete, Pete told me... Um, that it's a magnetic pickup tool, which is exactly what it says on the label. And, and it's for um, picking up some, some sort of metal object, like a, a nut or a bolt, that you've uh, dropped into a tiny crevice, like a, the, the engine block on your car or something like that. So it's really brilliant. And the, the person who made this had a very particular purpose for it. And if I had never read the label, and I had never been informed by Pete as to this object's function and its intended purpose, then I probably would have never employed it properly. And it would have never functioned the way that it was designed to. So what does it mean to be human? And why has God created humans? What I hope we realize today is that to be human is really to be like Christ. And to be like Christ is to be like God. And to be like God is to be a person of self-emptying, humble, sacrificial love and service for the sake of others. Uh, the text that we're going to contemplate mostly this morning is found in Philippians chapter 2. So if you would turn there and stand, and we'll read that together. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 13. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will 
and to work for his good pleasure. Allow me to pray for us one more time. Father, this is a familiar passage of scripture to many of us. Would you give us fresh understanding? Would you give us ears to hear as though we had never heard this before? Would you accomplish the work that you desire to do in us? For your name's sake, we pray this, O God. For your name's sake, amen. You may be seated. So Paul, the apostle, he planted a church in the city of Philippi, which is in Macedonia, uh, around Greece. And Paul, at this point, is in prison. And Paul's writing the Philippian believers because he is so excited about them. He's so ecstatic about their faith. You see, he had been put in prison on account of preaching the gospel. And in his day, when you were put in prison, uh, the state did not provide for your sustenance. You had to rely on your friends to take care of you, to bring you food, to bring you clothing. Um, all, that thi- all those things had to be provided by those who loved you. So Paul is put in prison, and the Philippians, a church that he planted in Philippi, they hear about this, and they send a substantial gift to him through the messenger Epaphroditus. So, so Paul is very happy to hear that they love him, and that they are encouraging him, um, that they're still committed to the gospel that he proclaimed to them. And he's especially encouraged because Epaphroditus has told him that these believers are facing persecution. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was full of veterans uh, from the Roman military. It's very nationalistic. Right? This is a colony in a non-Roman not, not in Rome, it's not in Italy. This is in Greece slash Macedonia. So you've got this outpost filled with Roman, uh, ex-Roman soldiers who have pledged their allegiance and love the style of Rome. They love the emperor. They love it. So you have all of a sudden in this community a group of people who aren't so crazy about Rome, who aren't so ecstatic about the emperor, who are actually saying that Caesar isn't Lord, but Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to cause some problems, and it has for them. There's echoes throughout the letter that they are being persecuted. We don't know how severely, probably economically, socially, not having the same rights and advantages and privileges that the rest of society has. Uh, We see this in chapter 1. If you look back in chapter 1 to the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 27, Paul is thanking them for their gift, for caring about him, and now he's also encouraging them because they have faced opposition. But even though they faced opposition, they haven't abandoned the gospel, which is why he's extra happy. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that that you saw I had and now hear that I still have So Paul is encouraging the Philippians. And this is the way he goes about encouraging them in the face of persecution. He says, look, you're being persecuted and you're suffering for it. But realize this, God did not just grant it to you to believe in Jesus, but he has granted you to share in his sufferings, to suffer like Jesus. See, it isn't just granted to you to be able to identify with Jesus so that you participate in his resurrection and eternal life but it's also been granted that you participate in his suffering and his death. So, Philippians, be encouraged. This is not something abnormal. Christianity in America that is unpersecuted largely in many ways, not every way, that's abnormal. But the Christianity that the Philippians are experiencing, that's normal because it has been granted to them to suffer with Christ and on behalf of Christ. It's proof. It's proof that they belong to him. Because they are his body and he is the head and they are following him where he went. And he endured suffering on his way to exaltation. So Paul says, be encouraged. Be encouraged. It's been granted 
for you to suffer, to experience the same conflict that even I am as a follower of Christ am enduring. So if there's any encouragement in this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, knowing that I'm suffering with him, meaning it's the evidence and the proof that I'm identified with him. If there's any encourage of that, chapter 2. If there's any comfort from the love of Christ that he has shown us in the gospel. If there's any participation in the spirit of Jesus Christ. If you have any affection and sympathy that has arisen in your lives and in your hearts because of the gospel, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What Paul is saying is this. I'm so glad to hear that you have not abandoned the faith because you've been persecuted. I'm so glad to hear that you still are concerned for me, even though it means persecution for you. Now, make my joy complete. What brought Paul, the apostle, joy is when the churches were maturing into the fullness of who Jesus is. That's what Christian maturity is. As Ephesians 4 says, maturity in the church is not how great um, your pastor preaches. It's not how loud or talented your band is. It's not about how many people you bring into your building. It's not about how many programs you have or how great of a children's ministry you have. Paul says that the sign of Christian maturity is when people are growing up in Christ and looking like him, looking like him and attaining to the fullest of his stature. So, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, you need to all have the same mindset. You need to agree on the type of mindset. You need to agree on the type of love that you are going to have, and this will bring me joy. And what is that mindset? Well, he says this in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the mindset that Paul is saying would bring him joy, that would be evidence of their maturing as a church. That they would not make their um, service of themselves their chief end, that, that um, serving their own ambitions wouldn't be their chief goal, but that they would humble themselves and actually consider other people as more significant than them. Now we may look at that and go, well, what does that mean exactly? I think it means exactly what it says it means. In order for us not to make seeking our own end our highest goal, we have to consider others as more significant than us. We have to view others as more important than us. Often we're stuck on ourselves and we think that we are most important, we are most significant, and we live that way. But Paul is saying, have a different type of mindset. Have the mindset that says, the person sitting right next to you right now is more significant than you. No matter how young, how old, how much money they make, how much facial hair they have, it doesn't matter. Paul says, have this mindset among you. That you consider others more significant than yourselves. So what does it actually look like practically? Verse 4 is Paul's practical application. People, especially in the American church, love practical application. If you want practical application, this is it. Memorize this verse. You can walk out right now because this is all it boils down to practically. But don't leave because it's not just about being practical. But this is the practical application of considering others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't look only to your own interests. Also look to the interests of others. The New Testament also, and the Old Testament, state this command in a different way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul assumes that we love ourselves. And in Philippians, he says, he assumes that he, we seek our own interest. That's okay. We need to do that. We'd be foolish not to. If I'm starving, I need to go seek my interest and have a bite to eat. But, he says, have this mind among you that you seek the interest of others as well as you seek your own interests and that you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, this is revolutionary. This is totally revolutionary because we seem to be hardwired, and not just our culture, but every culture, to make the uh, advantage of self our highest end. And Paul is coming at us with something that's totally different. Totally different. To seek others' interests as much as we seek our own. Now, 
he roots this command, he roots this command to love our neighbors as ourselves, to seek their interests as much as our own, in the mind of Christ. And he says in verse 5, have this mind, this mind that I've been describing to you, have this mind uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Saying this, look, you are in Christ Jesus. The New Testament is full of this phrase, being in Jesus. How do we get in Jesus? We get in Jesus through faith. And when we trust in Jesus, the New Testament teaches that he gives us his spirit, which unites us to him. So that's why Paul says, if there's any participation in the spirit, back in verse 1, if there's any participation in the spirit of Christ, then you ought to also have the same mind of Christ. So he's rooting our practical application for today in the mind of Christ. And this is what he describes the mind of Christ as. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We're so familiar, many of us, with this passage that the shocking awe factor has kind of lost its edge. We could so easily become dull to this, so I pray that God would give us ears to hear it afresh. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, what Paul is talking about here is not Jesus incarnate. He's not talking about Jesus, the human being, bearing God's image. No, Paul is saying that Jesus shares in the deity of the Father. Jesus shares in the very identity of God. He is in the form of God. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus, who is the form of God. Jesus, as God, empties himself by taking on the form of a servant being found in human likeness. He empties himself as God. What does that mean? A lot of people speculate. Well, does it mean that he set aside some of his divinity? Does it mean that he, he was only a human being while he was on the earth and then he regained his divinity? That speculation, I think, can be avoided if we just read what Paul says because he explains what he means by he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. So Jesus, who is God, eternally existing as God, he empties himself of his right to rule, to be served, to have all authority. He empties himself of all of his privileges as divine. And he humbles himself and becomes human. And he becomes a servant, a slave. His whole life, we know, was marked by that. But it began as Jesus divine having this mind in himself to serve, to empty himself, to not grasp at what is his by rights, which is equality with God, and the worship and the privileges that come with that, but to humble himself, to empty himself, and become man. That's amazing. That's not like the gods of um, other ancient myths, uh, of other religions around um, not only Paul's day, but even before that, where so often the gods were jealous, the gods were super proud, the gods were all about gaining more and more worship, they were, more, they were all about uh, making much of themselves, they're all about subjugating those that they had created. It's just not the, the, the nature of this God that we see here in Jesus Christ. Jesus empties himself and becomes a servant to those whom he made. This is amazing. Verse 8 is also amazing. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Don't miss this. The trajectory that Jesus has as God, it's a downward trajectory. God's mindset, Jesus' mindset is downward. Empty myself. Serve others. Well, that same mindset is embodied in Jesus incarnate. Jesus, the man, humbles himself. And he becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, as man, has the same mind that he has as divine. The trajectory is the exact same. It's downward. It's humility. It's servanthood. It says that he became obedient to the point of death. What was he obedient to? 
He was obedient to all of God's commands, all of God's law, which the scriptures plainly teach is summarized in this one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus perfectly obeys. He perfectly loves God and his neighbors, even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. His love was a cross-shaped love. You could say it was cruciform. It's not just a, hey, I love you because you love me, but I'm willing to die for you even though you're the one who wants to kill me. That's the love of Jesus. That's the mind of Jesus. Now, when we read this passage, particularly verses 6 through 8, as whole Bible readers, we should be hearing some allusions to the very beginning of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1 talks about why God created humans. And it uses similar language to the language we find in Paul here in Philippians. In Genesis chapter 1, God says this concerning why he made humans. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created man in his likeness. Remember, Jesus was born and became into the likeness of men, but mankind had been created originally in the likeness of God. And God created humanity in order that we would bear his image, that we would be like him, that we would be holy, distinct from the rest of creation, and that we have this particular vocation, this particular calling on our lives to be like God. That's why he made us. That's our purpose, is to be like God, to image who he is. But it continues. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth to you. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now the picture that we get of God in Genesis 1 is the picture of a person who is incredibly generous, incredibly humble, incredibly loving. You see, God had the absolute right as the creator of the universe, of the world, and everything in it to directly assert himself over the world, to rule it exactly as he wanted. He had the right and the authority to um, subject all things to him and be oppressive and do it any manner that he wanted. It was his divine prerogative. But what we see in Genesis 1 is that he actually entrusts the rule and the dominion of the earth to humans. God creates humans in his image, and instead of just directly ruling creation, he desires to rule through them, to have relationship with them and that they would be able to have um, the freedom to determine how is the world going to be cultivated? What are we going to make of the world? That's what we see when Adam names the animals. God didn't name the animals. Adam named the animals. He used the, the true authority and, and, in a true sense, the sovereignty that God had given him to be able to actually have an impact on the world. God was not overbearing on creation, but he shares his authority with humans who have been made in his likeness to bear his image. So God is generous. We see it here in uh, the creation account. Unlike the other gods of the ancient myths of the surrounding cultures of Israel, he wasn't creating people to feed him with sacrifices. No, he created people and he gave them a world to bless them and to share his rule and his reign with them. This is a generous God. This is a humble God. He's not about asserting himself. This is a God of love. And so it's no surprise that when we look to Philippians 2, we see the exact same thing. Jesus, who is in the form of God, who, if you want to see God, you look at Jesus. What does he do? 
he empties himself. He humbles himself. He serves others. This is who he is. This is the nature of God. God is a God of love. So Jesus' death on the cross in service to the world in order to redeem us from our sins and the corruption that they have brought, it's not in spite of his divinity. His sacrificial death is because of his divinity. Jesus is not acting incongruently with who he is as divine. We see that because who he is as divine, humbling himself, is exactly who he is as human. You see, God created us to be like him, but we aren't like him. We are selfish, proud, self-absorbed, self-seeking, arrogant people by nature because we are captive to sin. Adam and Eve were given everything, only one restriction placed on them in all the world, but they weren't content with that. They wanted it all. They wanted to be overbearing. They wanted the right to choose what was good, what was evil. They did not bear God's image, and neither have we. But Jesus became man. And as a man, his vocation was the same as ours, to bear God's image. And whereas Adam failed to bear God's image by disobeying and eating from the tree, Jesus Christ bore God's image by obeying to the point of death on a tree. So that Jesus becomes a new Adam, if you will. Jesus becomes the beginning of a new humanity, a restored humanity, a true humanity that is no longer self-seeking, that is no longer selfish and proud, making the service of oneself the highest goal. But he's the beginning of a new humanity in which the service of others is the goal, in which humility is the norm, in which selflessness is part of that new humanity's nature. That's what Jesus has accomplished. And it's so that when we look at the death of Christ on the cross, we see that the cross is not only the pardon for our sins, which is awesome, and we ought to rejoice at that because we need pardon. We need forgiveness. But the cross is not only the pardon for our sins, it's also the pattern for our lives. God reveals himself in Jesus. Jesus is the form of God. And Jesus, as God, humbles himself. And Jesus, as the image of God, humbles himself to the point of death on the cross. That is what it looks like to be an image bearer of God to empty yourself, to serve others, even lay down your life for others. Jesus is the truest human in all of history, and Jesus is the truest picture of who God is in all of history, because he is God. You see the connection there? Jesus became human so that he could be everything that we were made to be. Everything that we were made to be so that by faith in him, And by his salvation, we could be restored into who we were made to be. God made us to bear his image, but we couldn't because we became captives to sin. So Jesus, the image of God, was everything that we were supposed to be and redeems us by the cross so that we can then be restored into who we were made to be. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not just future escaping from hell, but it's right now living according to God's design for you. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verses 6 through 8, we see allusions, and we hear allusions to Genesis 1. In verses 9 through 11, the allusions are to Isaiah 45. So if you would turn there briefly, Isaiah is right in the middle of your Bible. Just open it up in the middle, find chapter 45, and you're there. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 22. This is God speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me 
Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Did you hear the parallel? Paul has this passage in mind when he says that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus is Lord. He's thinking of Isaiah 45. By myself I have sworn that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And your note at the bottom of the page will say, or every tongue shall confess. It's what Paul is referring to. See, God told the Israelites and all the nations that every knee will come before him and confess him. And Paul says that every knee will bow before Jesus and confess him as Lord. Now, he's not just saying Jesus is Lord in the same sense that Caesar is Lord, although that is true. He is the king. He is the ruler. But he's saying that they will confess that he is Lord, the divine name for Yahweh. In the Old Testament, they called Yahweh Lord. In the New Testament, instead of translating Yahweh, they said Lord, and it was God's proper name. And so Paul is saying that if you want to know who God is, if you want to know this God's name, look at Jesus and know his name. Jesus is God, and every single knee will bow before him. And look at this. To him shall come, verse 24 in Isaiah 45, and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. So even those who never submit to Jesus, never believe in Jesus, never love Jesus, they will come and they will bow and they will confess that he is Lord. There is no denying it. It's not that, it's not that Jesus was simply overcome by the forces of evil. No, God exalts him in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, because it's a vindication that he truly is God. This is not some helpless man who was overcome by the Roman empires and by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No, this is God himself being God himself, being a person of humility, of self-emptying love and service. This is a vindication of who he is. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 45. So all people will confess that Jesus is Lord, and those who refuse to believe in him will be ashamed because they will be forced to admit that he truly was God. And then look in verse 25, Isaiah 45. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, all of God's people, in the Lord shall be justified and shall glory. That's that word justified, it's the same word for righteousness. What God is saying is that in me, all the people of God, the offspring of Israel, will be justified, will be made righteous. Think about it this way, will be made right. Right according to what? According to the pattern that God created us for. To, to be made right is to be made once again into an image bearer of God. To be made right is no longer to seek one's own interests as his highest goal, but also to seek the interest of others. To be made right is to look like Jesus, which is why he says that in the Lord... In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified. This is what we see in Philippians. It is in the Lord who we come to find out is Jesus that we shall be justified. It is in Jesus that our image-bearing capabilities are restored, that we are freed from our old nature, our selfishness, in order to be like God, to reflect his glory. This gives glory to God. This gives glory to God and pleases him, as we see in the next few verses. Therefore, my beloved, in light of the mind I've just described to you, this mind of Christ, this mind of humility, self-emptying, etc., as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Therefore, because you have seen Jesus, you've seen what God is like, and you have seen what humanity is supposed to be like. Therefore, 
as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. A couple of things here. A lot of times we read this and we think, oh no, that sounds like works righteousness. We need to figure out how to explain this. It's true, it's, and it's very simple. Paul says, first of all, that what, what he's trying to tell them is that I can't always be with you. Not only as in my presence, but even now much more in my absence. I can't always be the one there motivating you, encouraging you, showing you what it looks like to be mature in Christ, showing you what it looks like to seek the interests of others. You need to take this uh, responsibility for yourselves. You need to work this out for yourselves. This isn't your salvation is always attached to me and I have to be there for you. Work it out for yourselves. Work out your own salvation. Work it out in fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Why fear and trembling? Because this is serious business. This is not just an option in the Christian life that we work out our salvation. It's not just an option that we work out the implications of what it means for us to be in Jesus Christ, to be a part of this new humanity. We have to take this seriously. We have to do this with some reverence and with some awe because this is bigger than anything else in the world. If you've been tracking with uh, the World Cup, which culminates today. Um, last week, Germany slaughtered the host nation, Brazil, 7-1 to one in the semifinal. Now, Brazil's like the soccer capital of the world. They're huge into soccer, and the whole nation's hopes were riding on this team, and they got utterly humiliated in front of their entire nation by the Germans. And there's footage. It's funny and it's sad at the same time of Brazilians in the stands just um, terrified, humiliated, trembling at what was happening. This was so important to them, so important. They were trembling. Paul is saying, this is important. This is important, friends. This is important if you call yourself a follower of Christ. It's important that you work out what salvation is. Salvation is the restoration of what was broken. What was broken in us was bearing God's image. Salvation is the restoration to us being able to bear God's image because Jesus has shown us what that image looks like. And by union with him, by participating in his spirit, like verse 1 says, we are enabled to. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works this into you. It is God who works in, into you the power and the desire to be human, to be his image bearer, to be like Christ. God is working this into you, so take it seriously. This is what he's doing in the world. He is creating a, a new race, a new humanity, a new nation, a new kingdom, that is countercultural, that is so distinct from all the other nations, all the other types of culture, cultures in the world. He's creating us to be holy like he is holy. It's a serious business, and that's what we've been called to. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to be a part of this new kingdom of light that's under the kingship of Jesus, who submits to him and follows him wherever he goes. And where he goes, he goes to the cross. He is humble and self-giving, this is our God, and we were made to bear his image. God is doing this in the world because it pleases him. When he created humanity, creating us to bear his image, it pleased him. And when we disobeyed and were not able to bear his image, it obviously displeased him. It'd be like the person who made this tool. If it was never used for its intended purpose, the person would be discouraged and would not be pleased. But if he saw people using it for its intended purpose... It would bring him joy and pleasure. In the same way, God receives joy and pleasure when we are functioning according to our proper purpose, which is to be his image bearers, which is to be like Christ, which is to be like God, which is to be people who are humble and self-giving and servants of others. So here, in conclusion, the call of Christ that we're so familiar with once again if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will actually save it. This is what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus in taking up a cross and denying yourself and losing your life because that's what it truly means to be human. And those who don't just identify with Jesus with their lips but actually follow him with their lives will also share in his resurrection. Now some of you may be hearing this and thinking, I usually don't conceive of my discipleship this way. Usually it's just, I know I need to read my Bible, try to pray better, um, try to at least go to small group once a week, um, and maybe serve at the soup kitchen. Maybe you haven't thought about it in terms of, no, God has saved me so that I can be who he made me to be. That's okay. That's okay wherever you are in your walk with the Lord. Whether you're brand new or you're ancient, the reality is this. Paul says concerning following Christ and being like him and reaching uh, up and attaining to his likeness, which culminates in the resurrection. He says this in chapter 3. Not that I've already obtained this. I'm not fully mature. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to, to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So wherever you're at, Jesus offers today for you to take up your cross and follow him. Paul offers today, or suggests today, forget what lies behind. Strain forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be exalted? For Jesus, it meant the cross. And the same for us. If we are to share in Jesus' resurrection, if we are to be exalted with him in the new creation and enjoy the life that he has, we too must be a people who are cross-bearing, who are humble, who give of ourselves for the sake of others. That's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus says, anyone who does not take his cross up cannot be my disciple in Luke 14, 27. Anyone who does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. So, practically, like we said earlier, let each of you not only consider his own interests, but look after the interests of others. Ask yourself, since you walked in here, have you once considered the interests of those next to you? Over the last week, can you point to something that proves or demonstrates that you have sought the interest of others as much as you have sought your own? The application of this is not to join some, a life group application is not uh, in particular to do anything. First, what it is, is to ask yourself, do I have the mind of Christ? Is there evidence of this in me? Ask those who are close to you. Ask those who are know you. Do I have the mind of Christ? And if upon reflecting and contemplating on this, you realize, man, I really haven't had the mind of Christ. Confess that. He forgives. That's what the cross is about. But it's also about you knowing what it looks like to be human. <clears throat> what it looks like to bear God's image. Think about the implications that this has for the way we rebuke one another, the way we reprove one another and encourage one another and call one another out when we see sin. It's no longer a, con a condemning, hey, you're being bad, you need to be more well like me, or more like Christ, but I'm being more like Christ, which is why I'm calling you out. No, it's not that sort of thing. It's, hey, I noticed that you did this, and that just didn't seem... Christ-like. It didn't seem like you were seeking the interest of another in the way you said this or in this action that you took. So I just wanted to encourage you that that's not, that's not who you were made to be. That's not what you have been redeemed to be. You are in Christ Jesus, and in him you can seek the interest of others, and you can be truly human. So contemplate these things. Talk about them as you go out. Talk about them at lunch. Think about them. Take it seriously with fear and trembling. <coughs> Obviously, we're going to struggle with this for the rest of our lives. We're never going to fully attain to the image of Christ, who is the image of God. But here's the encouragement. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, 
Paul is confident in something. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, as you strive to put on Christ, to have the mind of Christ, to serve others, to share in his life, to share in his suffering on behalf of others, you're going to fail, you're going to stumble, you're going to turn inward. I do it every day. But the good news is that he who began a work in us will complete it. When Jesus returns, we will receive new bodies like Jesus' body, free from sin, free from the distractions and the self-centeredness of sin. And we will be like him because we, shall, we will finally see him as he is. That's our hope. That's our hope. So now we're going to participate in Jesus. We're going to participate in him through communion, through the Lord's Supper. Paul tells the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 that the cup, that, uh, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's saying, look, when we are taking the supper, we are participating in who Christ is. We are saying, not only do I identify with Jesus, but I follow him. I'm part of his body. Where the head goes, I goes. Because Jesus is a servant, I am a servant. Because Jesus sought the interest of others above his own, so do I. And this is why Paul was angry and God was angry with the Corinthians. Because in the very next chapter, what we see in chapter 11 is that there were wealthier Christians who could get off work early for the church gatherings, and they would basically eat all the food, drink all the wine, and be drunk, so that when the poorer Christians who had to labor later, when they would arrive, there would be nothing left for them. So even though these wealthy Christians were participating in the body of Christ, participating in his blood with their lives, they were looking nothing like Christ. And God judged them, and he disciplined them for it. Even some of them died. And so as we take the cup, as we take the bread, let us not make the same mistake of participating through the Lord's Supper in Jesus and yet not participating in Jesus during the rest of the week. But let us, as we contemplate and sing about his love during this song, let us also think about what it looks like for us to love others with the same love that we have received.